There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Those are verses 8 to 13 of Psalm 86, which along with Psalm 85 are the psalms appointed for today, Thursday, November the 10th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We are continuing today to look at the book of Joel, chapter 2, verses 21 to 27, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 15, verses 1 to 2, and then skip forward to 11 to 32. The only reason the first two verses are in there, we read them yesterday, are that um, they're given context for the second part of it. Uh, we, like I said, we read verses 9 to 10 yesterday as well. So, And then in, finally in James's letter, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 15. So remember, Joel um, had called for a solemn fast because the the uh, the locusts had destroyed all the crops and, and Israel looked like there was famine coming. And so he called for a solemn fast to say, this is the Lord's doing. And, and he's trying to get our attention. And, and they did. So now you see, fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, beasts of the field. For the pastures of the wilderness are green, the tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. So why is he addressing the livestock? Well, he's addressing the livestock because earlier he had said, remember, that they were, were also suffering in this famine, famine because the locusts had eaten everything they would ordinarily have eaten. So they were confused that they were in pastures and there was nothing to eat. And even the sheep, which eat the the smallest little bits of nothing, um, couldn't find anything to eat either. And so he's encouraging not only the people of the land, but also the beasts of the land. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given early rain for your vindication. Why are they being vindicated? Well, because they repented and they turned back to the Lord. They heard the warning and they responded appropriately. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. So what he's saying is is that because you responded appropriately, because you responded to my admonition, and and you saw the truth of this, then I'm going to bless you now. I'm going to restore what has been taken away from you because you did what was required and you turned to me with your whole heart. So I'm giving you back everything that's been taken away from you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Now, as I said, when we started the book of um, Joel, nobody has any idea, um, honestly, about when this was written. We, we don't know whether it was written before the Babylonian exile or after. We don't know whether it was written before the Assyrians overran the northern empire or after. have no earthly idea that the reason... Um, is, is that he gives us no clues. He mentions no kings. He doesn't—that's normally how you date a book. 
is when when he tells you he, he will tell you when he was prophesying during the reign of these kings but here we get nothing from Joel at all and so what we get is is the the reminder that God is good and that that he has promised to be merciful and gracious and forgiving whenever his people who are called by his name seek after him and repent and return from their wicked ways and here what Joel says is God said he's going to he's going to bless you because you did exactly what you were supposed to do he he gave you a warning and you heeded that warning. You listened and said, this must be from God. This must be a judgment from God. And, and, it, and it gives us an opportunity to repent and turn away in order that um, we might avert coming disaster. And so here God promises you will not be put to shame. I'm going to restore everything that's been taken away from you uh, and then some. And then I'll never do this again. Well, we can't say that that didn't happen <laughs> because it certainly has happened for a very long period of time. And so this was written in a short term to a specific group of people because they did the right thing. It's always in every generation. It's the responsibility of those leaders in that generation to discern the times and to call God's people to appropriate action in connection with the discerning of the times. So again, now we are in that back in the gospel, and we're, we're going to read the parable of the prodigal son, and I mentioned it yesterday, um, because that was exactly the story that Jesus told when he, when he spoke to the people. Uh, they, they questioned him here. They, the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so yesterday, what we got was what followed right after that, where Jesus talks about which one of you who has a hundred sheep, if one goes astray, won't go find the other one, bring it back, and then have a celebration with um, your friends and family to celebrate the return of the one that was lost. And then the same with the woman who had 10 coins, lost one of the coins, sweeps around, finds that other one, and then invites everybody to celebrate with her. And he says, that's what it looks like in heaven when a sinner repents, which is exactly what Joel's prophecy said. So now skip forward from that, that introduction about the context for when Jesus tells this parable. It, it, it fits right behind the, uh, the losing the hundred and going after the losing the one and going out leaving the ninety nine behind and going after the the one, he said there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father father give me the share of the property that's coming to me, and when he does that what he's saying is that I want my inheritance I want it now. I, I wish you were dead, let's pretend that you are, so that I can go ahead and have what I'm going to get in the inheritance that's more important to me than you. And he divided his property between them. He could have just kicked him out. He, he could have refu- absolutely refused to do this. He had no basis on which to, to make a demand, <clears throat> but he did. And so he divided his property among them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine rose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. I mean, a Jewish guy would have to be absolutely destitute and desperate in order to take a job tending pigs. I mean, this is the the lowest you could possibly sink. I mean, he's at rock bottom, and it gets worse. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. So he's starving, and the pigs are eating. And he's Jewish. I mean, it just doesn't get much worse than this. You can't get, there's no further bottom 
than being broke, be, being Jewish, being broke, tending pigs, and wishing that you could have what the pigs eat, but nobody even offers that to you. Nobody cares. But when he came to himself, he said, wait a minute, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? Dad's not all that bad a guy. He's a whole lot better than this dude. And, and he takes care of his servants better than this. I'll arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he's practiced his little speech. He's going to say all the right things. Hey, I'm not worthy to be called your son anymore because I've sinned against heaven and before you. So don't call me your son anymore. Just treat me like a servant. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And you can just imagine a father sitting there looking out the window and seeing this prodigal son from a distance and, and then running to meet him because he's so delighted to see him, even though the father had been told, essentially, I wish you were dead. You don't mean anything to me. Stuff means something to me. You don't. And so here, though, he sees him and he runs. And wealthy men didn't run. They did not run in that culture. That was not something they would ever do. But, but he sees him coming back. Now, the father didn't go into the land and look for him. He didn't send people to look for him. He didn't do any of those things. No, he gave him the space, and he, gave, he, he allowed him to have his own way. He treated him like an independent, free agent adult. But as soon as he saw him making any effort to come back, he knew, and he went and ran to him. And that's how your father runs to you. He just waits for you to look and start coming back in his direction with your head down and your eyes on the road and you're beaten and you look pathetic because you've been out and you've been finding yourself in sin and and you've forgotten him and you've neglected him. And then you say, all right, I'll try. And then he meets you wherever you are. I mean, when I decided at 30, that I wanted to come back to the Lord. I had been a pretty wild child for a while. And so when I, at 30, I decided to come back to the Lord, but I, because I'd read all this self-help books, right? And they weren't, I, I knew that they weren't reaching that part of me that needed desperately to be reached. Um, because I knew that wanting more stuff wasn't going to fix what was wrong with me. I was successful. Everything was good. But I knew that there was something wrong. And so I began to look to how to improve myself. Well, ultimately, it just came down to wanting the right stuff and working hard to get it. Well, the problem was I knew that wasn't right. That wasn't the actual issue. And so I said, okay, here's the deal. I'll make a deal with you. I'll begin to read the Bible. And, and I'll read the Bible, but I'm not going to read the New Testament because I don't want to have to deal with Jesus. So that, that was were my terms. So I began to read the Bible, and I read through Genesis. I don't remember anything about it. I don't remember it being particularly revelatory to me at the time. It was later. I spent three and a half years teaching a group of men through the book of Genesis. Um, but, but then I got to Exodus, and I, and I got to the mountain, to the burning bush, and God says, I am, is my name. And I was just devastated because I realized that I'd been trying to run from God and that there was nowhere to run. I realized that Psalm 139, which I didn't even know at the time, I realized now that that's exactly the truth that absolutely bowled me over and wrecked me. 
and, and I realized that God met me in that place, and I was destroyed and devastated because I realized what I had done, and it was still a few days later before I, I got put back together again because for several days there I was just Humpty Dumpty thinking I was absolutely hopeless. And then I, I remember that sense of hopelessness and then got in the car, went driving around in Tampa, was working down there as an expert, and and pulled into the parking lot at West Shore Mall and started to pray. And when I did, I just started to weep because God met me there in that place in the same way that this man goes and meets his son. And I know what this feels like, and I know what it looks like. And so he goes back, and the father finds him, feels compassion, runs, and embraced him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So he's, he's given his speech, but the father cuts him off. He, he allows him to say the things that are true. You've sinned against heaven and before me, and you're no longer worthy to be called my son. But he doesn't allow him to finish it. And what he was going to finish with, remember, was this. It was going to be that, that <clears throat> treat me as one of your hired servants. Well, that's the thing with reconciliation. The one who has done the sinning doesn't get to determine the future of the relationship. And so the father lets him say the first part. He lets him make his confession. And he, he lets him not only make the confession, but he also lets him make the statement of the cost. But he doesn't get to determine the future of the relationship. The father immediately determines the future of the relationship. He said to his servants, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. In other words, what he's done is to restore him. I'm not worthy to be your son. And he says, you are my son. Got nothing to do with being worthy. You are my son. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. And this fits in perfectly with the leaving the 99 behind to go find the one sheep or leaving the, the nine aside to go find the one coin. It's exactly, it's a perfect illustration of those two statements that he made. Now, the older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. He said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed a fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. He's not speaking in relational terms here. He's speaking as though he were the father's servant. Look, these many years I've served you, and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me even a young goat that I could celebrate with my friends. And so he's not speaking in relational terms except for when he speaks of his friends that he might have celebrated with. But when this son of yours, not my brother, came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me and all that's mine is yours, which is a true statement at this point because the other brother has already gotten everything he's going to get. And so everything, literally, the father owns now belongs to this one. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So often it's easy to have that wrong attitude of the elder brother, to have the attitude that, that I've done all the service, I've done the hard work and the heavy lifting, and I've been righteous all my life. It's the attitude of a Pharisee because he's never loved. He's never loved. 
He's seen himself as his father's servant. At least the younger one knew that he was a son, and, and the man was the father. This one never accepted that, and so resents the, the love that's shown to the other one. It was always there. It's the same man. One understood the character of the man. The other completely misunderstood the character of the man. And it's easy to do that with God. It's easy to get a wrong idea about who the Father is. It's easy to forget that he is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and all those things. And we can see him as a stern taskmaster that we have to please all the time. And there's no way to please him. It's, it, that's the wrong way to think about God. He is pleased because of who you are as his child. He wants so much more for you than you want for yourself, as a good father would. In the James passage today, he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes, these are the Jews that he's writing to, in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And, and what he means by that is to say that, that, yes, there will be tests that come to challenge your faith. These things will come. We know they will come. He says, count it all joy when you meet those trials. Deal with those things the right way. Keep a right attitude toward those things. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's what you want it to produce. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So, so allow the testing of your faith to make your faith perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He said it's a good thing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. He's basing that on Solomon as much as anything else. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's being driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Ask in faith. Be bold when you come before the throne, he says. Be bold. If the Lord's put it in your heart to ask for something, then, then ask for it from a good father. It's based on Jesus' teaching on prayer, right? I mean, you know, if he's a good father, if you're a good father and you know how to good, give good gifts to your children, well, then you could expect more than that out of him. He's a much better father than you are. And so he says, be bold. Have faith when you come before the throne. Don't sit in doubt. And you hear in that when Jesus talks to the man that says, if you're able to heal my son, please do. Jesus says, if. Huh? Really? If? He says, no, 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 no. I believe. Heal my unbelief. And so when you, when you hear that doubt in your mind and in your heart, when you ask for something from the Lord— that you know that that is appropriate to ask for, then you got to deal with that doubt by speaking to it and saying, Lord, heal my unbelief, because I see that that's a bigger problem for me. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. So whichever, whenever your situations change, boast either way, because like a flower of the grass, he'll pass away. He's going back to Solomon again. He's going to Ecclesiastes. This stuff goes away, right? For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade in the midst of his pursuits. Which is exactly fitting with the story that Jesus told about the rich man whose crops produced great things. He decided that he would um, then build bigger barns. Again, this is not a problem to make a decision to build bigger barns. 
The problem is then he speaks to his soul and says, soul, you can take your quiet and your relaxation now because you have enough to last for a long period of time. And Jesus says, you fool. You have no way to know that your night, your life, this night will be demanded of you. And that's exactly what James is saying here is that don't take glory in your in your material situation in life because that can change in an instant. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God can't be tempted with evil. God knows the difference between good and evil. And he wouldn't choose evil because he knows there's consequences to choosing the evil. So why would God ever choose evil? He only chooses the good, and yet he tempts no one. It's not God's desire to tempt you. He wants you to to stand steadfast in in testing and testing will come period end of sentence we live in that kind of a world and and those temptations are things that you can desire that are not good for you each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire i mean you can be tempted in certain kinds of ways right i mean there's certain things that are not a temptation to me gambling's not a temptation to me i have friends who who have serious problems with gambling and, and they, they couldn't possibly walk into a casino because the, it would overwhelm them and they would come out broke hours later feeling horrible about themselves. doesn't bother me at all. I, I don't, I, I, it's not my thing at all. There's other things you can tempt me with, but that's not one of them. But so know your weaknesses and deal with those weaknesses. So you can be tempted, and temptation always comes down to desire. It's exactly what Eve was tempted by, that this thing was attractive to the eyes, that it was good to the taste, and it was desirable to make one wise. It was going to fulfill all those promises in her life, right? I'm going to take in beauty. I'm going to take in something that tastes wonderful, and it's going to make me wise. Really? Think about that one more time. (laughs) See if it's going to fulfill all that in your life. See if there's going to be any lasting effect on it. Nope, you're going to eat it. It's going to pass through, and you're going to gain a little bit of weight, but you're going to get rid of most of it. So desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So leave it alone. Know what it is that you're tempted by. The, the son, elder son showed what he wanted more than anything else. He wanted the same thing the younger son did. He didn't, he did, what he didn't want was the love of the Father. He just wanted the stuff. But he didn't see that as, as even good because the Father was still there. And so he couldn't celebrate. And he couldn't celebrate with his brother because he didn't consider him to be his brother. He's just your son. It's, what is it we're tempted by? How is it that we're tempted? And how do we deal with that temptation? Don't, don't get tempted to bitterness like the older son. Don't let that happen at all. But all these other things, what we, what we need to do is confess these are sinful and, and give them to the Lord and ask him to give you the strength to stand in the day of temptation in order that he might leave behind the blessing of life.